And now if you have children that are between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training where they will learn more about corporate worship and worshiping the Lord our God. They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of Ephesians. Only two more times will I say that, today and next week. We are approaching the end of our study in the book of Ephesians, and this morning we will be looking at chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. It's a very well-known passage that speaks about the armor of God. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would impress upon our hearts the great truths of Your Word, and our need to follow it, that we would know who we are in Christ and what you have called us to do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So we come now this morning to a relatively well-known passage about the armor of God. This is a passage that is often used in the church during Sunday school lessons and vacation Bible school. It has a special attraction to children. But it is important and vital for us, all of us, adults and children alike, to understand this description of the armor of God. Now, before we look at the individual pieces of the armor, we have to know and remember the context for our study. That each of the individual pieces is a part of the whole. You may recall that back in verse 11, Paul told us to take on the whole armor of God. And the word there for whole armor in the Greek is one that should have some meaning for you in English. It is a panoply. It is a fullness. It is all of the parts that we need. And so we have to remember that all of the pieces are what we need. We can't just say to ourselves, you know, I'd like to have the shoes, but I really don't want to carry around the shield. You know, I'd like to have the sword, but I don't want to have a stuffy helmet on my head. No, each of these pieces 
is required. None of them are optional. And together the armor serves a purpose. So we start this morning with the dress, with the soldier's dress. And then we move to the soldier's weapons, as Paul continues to describe these pieces of the armor. And then thirdly, we see the soldier's charge, the reason why we are told to wear this armor. The soldier's dress, the soldier's weapons, and the soldier's charge. Let's begin then with the first piece of the armor that Paul describes in verse 14. We are to fasten on the belt of truth. Now, the belt is actually more a part of the clothing or dress of the soldier than it is what we might consider armor. In Paul's day, the Roman soldiers would wear this sort of belt. And it was not that dissimilar from belts we wear today. As Paul goes through each of these pieces of armor, he has in his mind the Roman soldier. We may recall that Paul wrote this letter from prison. He's probably chained to a Roman soldier as he's writing it, looking at the soldier and thinking about the armor. And the armor and the weaponry that the Romans wore and had conquered the known world. So Paul wants us to have a very vivid image of this armor. And so the belt would have been a a leather strap-like thing that would go around the soldier. Now, the difference is, is that the soldiers would wear tunics rather than pants. You or I need a belt because we're afraid our pants won't stay up. Soldiers needed a belt to keep their tunics tight so that they could move and maneuver and their clothing wouldn't get in the way of their operations. The other important thing about the belt was it was the element that held the sword. The sword was sheathed into the belt and so the belt was a critical piece of equipment. A soldier couldn't fight without it. It helped him to go into battle unimpeded. It helped him to march orderly. It was also a source of inner confidence. You see, a soldier would get ready and would tighten his belt before he would go into battle. And we even have that same turn of phrase, don't we? We speak of tightening up our belts. And it's not just because we're on a diet. It's because we're facing a challenge financially or physically or otherwise and we want to get ready for it so we tighten up our belts. Now while the belt was not something that could always be seen by others, the soldier always knew it was there. And Paul compares the truth to this belt. He's giving us a picture of the truth with this description of a belt. Now, there are two possible meanings here for truth. The first is, it could be referring to the eternal, biblical truth that is found in the Scriptures. That is, the doctrines of the faith that we have given been given to us by the Lord Himself in His Word. But there's another way that we could think about truth, isn't there? We could think about our own truthfulness. How in our actions, we need to be truthful. We need to be sincere. 
Now, the good news is we don't need to choose which Paul has reference to here. Because actually, truthfulness begins with the truth. We cannot be truthful unless we know the Lord our God who is truth. We cannot act in a sincere and proper fashion unless we know the great truths of God's word. And so you see, this is why Paul makes this the very first piece of equipment that he describes. Without the doctrine of the scriptures, we are lost and at sea. It is as dangerous to rush into battle without the truth of God's word as it would be for a soldier to rush into battle without his belt to hold his clothes together. It's unthinkable. Now, as Americans, we very much need to hear this today because we are often a people who act first and think later. And more and more now we are seeing that the cardinal doctrines of the faith are being lost in the American church. After we finish our study in the book of Ephesians, and before we go to the book of 1 Samuel, we'll be looking at a short series in between, at the cardinal doctrines of the faith, the nature of God and the Trinity, justification by faith, the Bible as God's inerrant word, that more and more now when you ask people who say they are Christians, who say they are born again, they cannot articulate the truth that comes from God's word. And this is why the church is so weak. This is why the church is helpless at times, because we do not know the truth. Now stop for a moment and think about how much we know apart from the scriptures. How much time we spend finding out batting averages and wins above replacement and completion percentages and lyrics from songs and financial quotes and bids. And yet we do not spend the same effort in understanding God's word that is essential for us to live in the midst of this battle. You see, truth in our lives is essential because Satan loves to attack you with hypocrisy. He loves to come at you and to tell you you are a hypocrite and that you are lost. And it is the truth that guards us against this. It is the truth that guards us against deadly entanglements. Think again of the picture of the loose clothing of the soldier without being cinched together by the belt. Would you operate heavy machinery with flowing robes? Would you want your tie to flap around in the breeze as you were around sharp machinery? I don't think so. It would be caught, and it would not be a good thing. We need the truth to keep us compact ready to face the battle, understanding of who we are, and equipped to defeat our enemy. The church of Jesus Christ needs authenticity in our age. People are looking for reality. And the only way we can give them reality is to study and know the truth and to live it out in our lives. People do not want phony beliefs. Paul tells us we need to have the truth on us. 
The second item that Paul describes is the breastplate. The breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate for the Roman soldier was the major piece of armor that covered the chest and the back with all of the vital organs. And its purpose was to ward off sword thrusts that could do great damage. Now, could you imagine if something happened to your heart or something happened to your lungs? You would not survive, would you? But this is even true of lesser organs that we don't think that much of. We know the heart's important. We know the lungs are important. But you can't live for long without a liver. Or without kidneys. You see, we must protect the main organs of the body if we are in a war. And so this is the image that Paul wants us to have of the breastplate of righteousness. The Romans had a thick, strong metal breastplate. And this was one of the things in their armor that gave them advantage over their enemies. Oftentimes, in other places, especially among the poor, the only protection you had for your chest and back was the clothing that you wore. Maybe you tried to get some thicker winter clothing over you to help a little bit more against sword thrusts and slashes, but they certainly would do nothing like the metal breastplate of the Roman soldier. And so what Paul is doing is comparing this breastplate to righteousness. Now once again, righteousness here is a word that could be taken in one of two ways. It could first be taken to understand the righteousness that we have from Jesus Christ. It could secondly be taken to mean the righteousness or holiness that we have in our lives. And what the breastplate of righteousness does is it protects us against the accusations of Satan. And so therefore it is right to begin with the righteousness of Christ that comes to us freely. You see... Isaiah tells us in chapter 64 that our own righteousness is as filthy rags. Now let me ask you a question. How would you like to go off into a knife and sword fight in tattered rags that had holes in them? It was all you had to protect you. It wouldn't be much protection, would it? No, and our righteousness is no protection against the attacks of the enemy. But praise be to God that that is not the righteousness that we have first and foremost. That instead there is a righteousness that comes from God, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. It is a righteousness of God that he gives to us because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when we embrace Christ by faith, when we profess that he is our Savior, his righteousness becomes ours. We are united with Christ. And Isaiah describes this kind of righteousness in chapter 59. He says that God puts on a breastplate of righteousness and goes off to war. And so what Paul says is, is that we have that armor. We have that righteousness because of Jesus. We are protected against the assaults of the enemy because we have this from Christ. But righteousness is also a holiness of life. 
And this is true because our conduct, our actions, our growth in grace cannot be separated from the righteousness of Christ that we receive. Because we have Christ's righteousness, we are able to resist sin. We are able to pursue holiness. We are able to understand and obey the commands of God. And so what Paul is saying here is, in your life and in your actions, do not give Satan a handle to hold on to you. For you see, when we are caught in unrepentant sin, we do not lose our salvation. The righteousness of Christ is still ours. But we lose our sense of forgiveness. We lose our sense of the acceptance of God. And we are depressed. And we are confused. And if you think that that will not happen to you, all you need to do is to read the accounts of Scripture. How King David, the man after God's own heart, who led his people, who when he was caught in unrepentant sin with Bathsheba... He cried out because he said, my bones are melting within me. I've lost the joy of my salvation. You see, Paul tells us that the way we defend ourselves is by knowing and living the righteousness of Jesus. The next item that Paul describes are shoes. Shoes for our feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, if you think about these shoes in your mind's eye, I'm going to give you a turn of phrase. We're not just going to call them shoes. We're going to call them gospel boots. Because, you see, that was what the Romans wore off to war. They were half-length boots made of leather, sandals that would be on their feet strongly. And on the bottom of these shoes, these gospel boots, were studs of metal. And the studs of metal were there for two reasons. First, it made it easier for Romans to march mile upon mile upon mile. And then secondly, when they were fighting on the field of battle, it gave them a grip. It gave them a place to stand and to be firm, a hold upon the ground. They were like our modern cleats, if you think about it that way. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about the readiness of the gospel of peace? Well, I think the first thing that he means is preparation. He means that we have received the good news of the gospel, and because of that, we have peace with God, and we are now ready to stand against the devil with a strong foothold. We have a firm grip on the ground. Now, could you imagine what it would be like to fight the enemy without gospel boots, without the preparation of the gospel? Let me give you an image. How would you like to play football on the offensive or defensive line in tennis shoes? Do you think you'd have a firm grip? Or do you think with one hand someone could shove you and knock you down? You'd have no stability. You would slip and slide. You might even fall if no one touched you, if the grass were slick. You see, 
The preparation of the gospel is such that we are firmly grounded in the grace of God. That we know the work of Jesus is what makes us right with God. And we can stand against the attacks of the enemy. So when the enemy comes up to you and he says, you're not as faithful as you should be praying. You don't read your Bible much. Did you see the last way you treated your spouse? You never obey your parents. And you're lazy at work. You know what you can say to the enemy? I may have done all of those things. But that's not what makes me right with God. What makes me right with God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is a firm place where I can stand. And none of my sins can knock me down. I'm standing with gospel boots dug into the ground. You can't knock me over. You see, we have a firm stance because we know there is no way we could be more accepted than we already are in Christ. Now, this readiness could also refer to a readiness to announce the gospel of peace. That is, this gets to the marching aspect of the boots. The fact that we know the peace of God makes us want to share it with others. And so we are ready to fight the enemy by attacking his strongholds. Now remember, this is not just about speed. This is about endurance. We must be ready to keep on going. We cannot be discouraged if we share the gospel once and it doesn't bear immediate fruit. Sharing the gospel with others is a matter of perseverance. It's like a mile upon mile march, not a sprint. That's what the gospel boots are for. They give us the strength we need to march mile upon mile to bring the gospel of peace to others. Now we come to the weapons. We've looked at three items of the armor. We'll look now at three more. Now these weapons are no more and no less essential than the three we've just looked at. The only distinction might be in how they are used. They are still a part of the armor of the man of God. And the first one that Paul describes is the shield. The shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, you have to have the right kind of shield in your mind's eye. For some of us, we're used to seeing in film and plays small round shields that someone would have on their arm and they would use it in a sword fight. That's not the kind of shield that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a large Roman shield called a scutum. It was four and a half feet tall and more than two feet wide. It was built of wood, and covered with linen, and then with the hide of animals, and then it was kept all together with metal. And it was what the soldier used to protect himself in the battle. It would cover the entirety of his body. And the other thing about this shield was that it was specifically designed to deal with flaming arrows. You see, in ancient times, 
arrows would be fired by the hundreds, by the thousands against the enemy. There was no aiming to hit someone with an arrow. You simply filled the sky with arrows. One of the great proverbs of the ancient world about the strength and perseverance of the Spartan warriors of Greece was that the Persians came up to them in a, in a hypothetical conversation and said, we have so many arrows, we will shoot them and we will blot out the sun. And the Spartan answered, then we'll fight in the shade. And you see, that's what would happen. Now, what came to, to be in the days of the Romans was an added element of war. They would wrap the arrows with a flammable material and light them on fire and fire them into the enemy. That way, if you didn't even hit the enemy, you could start things on fire. And there would be chaos and smoke and damage. And the Romans developed these shields, and the idea was that the soldiers would let their shields be struck by the arrows. And the shields were treated with a liquid so that when the arrows hit, they would go out. They wouldn't cause damage. And this type of shield was used not just by itself, but in groups. They would stand side by side, and they would use these shields to protect each other. They would form a formation called the tortoise, in which the shields would be in front, the shields would be in back, and some would lift them above their heads, so that arrow upon arrow could rain on the Roman army, and they would not be damaged. Now what Paul is doing is he's saying to you, your faith should be like this kind of shield. Your faith covers you up so you are not exposed. Your faith links you up with others so that you are working together for defense. Your faith is able to strike down the flaming darts of the enemy. For you see, Satan loves to fire flaming darts at you. He wants to tempt you, not only for that initial temptation, but he wants it to set your life on fire. He doesn't want you just to sin for a moment. He wants that sin to destroy your relationships, to destroy your work and your ability to provide for your family, to destroy everything about you and your reputation. And you see, Paul says you need the shield of faith to put out those flaming arrows so that you won't be tempted, so that you won't be destroyed. It is our faith that protects us against the attacks of the enemy. Because Satan throws doubt at us. He throws false guilt at us. He calls us to disobey, to rebel against God. But faith lays hold of the promises of God. I want you to notice this is not the shield of the faith as if it is a shield made up of doctrines that we know and memorize. It is the shield of faith. It is your own personal faith that you cultivate through the Word of God, through prayer, and through fellowship with others. The shield defends us from the attack of the enemy. The final defensive item that Paul describes is the helmet. The helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet of Paul's day was made of very tough metal. It was said that only a hammer or an axe could pierce it. That if a soldier was hit on the helmet with a sword, the sword would merely glance away and he would be unharmed. That arrows would bounce off the helmet. 
it was a significant piece of the armor to protect the soldier and to keep him safe. And this would give the soldier confidence in addition to protection. Could you imagine today playing football or hockey without a helmet? You would be tentative. You would be afraid always that you were going to get hurt. You would not feel safe and secure. You would not be able to do what you are called to do. That's the image Paul wants us to get. That with the helmet on our heads, that we are confident and ready to face the battle. And this helmet is our salvation. Now Paul doesn't mean by that that we're saved by a helmet. What Paul means is that it is our salvation that is our confidence. It is our salvation that lets us know that we belong to Jesus. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul uses a similar image. He talks about the helmet of the hope of salvation. It protects us against the deception of Satan by keeping our minds clear. The measure of salvation that we have received protects us. We know we are forgiven. We know we have been delivered from sin and from bondage. We know we are adopted and a part of God's family. And so we have all of this confidence. And yet even more, we have confidence that our salvation at the last day we will receive. That there will come a day in which all sin will be gone. In which all striving will be over. In which the battle will be won. So let me ask you a question. Are you feeling the battle today with the enemy? A struggle in your marriage? Trouble with finances? Breakups of relationships? Sin that seems never to allow you to be free? That what you need to do is you need to strap on your helmet. You need to know that salvation in Jesus Christ is yours. You need to have confidence and joy in the salvation that comes from Christ. The last item that Paul describes is an offensive weapon. Now, it's not that it's only offensive. It's also used for defense. But it is distinct from these other five pieces of armor as we speak of the sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says. That it is an offensive weapon. Now, what Paul has in mind here is the short, sharp, two-edged sword that the Romans used called the gladius. It was the weapon that the Romans used to conquer the known world. You see, it was a few feet between two and three feet long, and it was sharp, and it was easily maneuverable. And it was maneuverable in a tight pack. And as the armies came together, the Romans could bring the full weight of its force to bear. You see, we might think, for example, it would be better to have an eight-foot-long sword that was huge. So that if we hit someone with the sword, it would do a lot of damage. The problem with that is, is that you swing that sword, and then about five minutes later, you're ready to swing it again. It's not very useful in the midst of an army of a battle. But this sword is. It might not, at first glance, look like the greatest weapon. 
But it is. And it's no surprise that this is the way that Paul describes the word of God. To the enemy, it doesn't look like much of a weapon. Perhaps you've had conversations with others who don't know the Lord, who mock the scriptures and who say, what does an old dusty book have anything to say about how I should live now? You see, it doesn't seem like a powerful weapon, but yet it is. It's easily wielded. It's versatile. It's powerful, just like the Roman sword. The Word of God has been described throughout the Scriptures as a sword. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4. We see it described as Jesus returns in the book of Revelation with a sword coming out of His mouth that is the Word of God. And the Spirit of God is the author of the Word of God. That's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. Now there's something very interesting here about the way Paul says the Word of God. The normal way that we would expect Paul to say this is the Logos of God. It's the word that Paul uses in John chapter 1 for word. We're even familiar with it because Logos means word. We have schools named after this. We talk about ology being the study of something, biology. We're very familiar with this Greek word. But that's not what Paul uses here. He uses a different word that means saying or particular instance. Now, that doesn't mean that this is a less powerful version of the Word of God. What Paul wants us to see and understand is that it is not just the concept of God's Word that is our powerful offensive weapon. It is knowing the individual, specific particulars of God's Word that is our weapon. For example... When Satan attacked our Lord Jesus Christ in the desert in Matthew chapter 4, how did Jesus resist him? Did he teach him generally about the sovereignty of God? Did he talk to him in theological terms? Now, what did Jesus do? He quoted the scripture to Satan. He had a specific instance of the word of God that was applicable in that place and in that time to defeat the enemy. That's what Paul has in mind here. Because just like the Roman short sword was made for close-up, personal combat, hand-to-hand, so that is what the Word of God is for. So how then do we use the Word of God? Well, first and foremost, by reading it. But we must do more. We must also study it to understand how it fits together and how all of the pieces make a cohesive whole. But finally, we must memorize it. We must hide it in our hearts so that we are ready for the attacks of the enemy so that we can parry his thrusts and to strike back at him. The word of God is powerful in the battle against the enemy. It motivates us like nothing else will. It convicts us of what we are to do. It is the power to bring from death to life. It is our comfort and our stay in trouble. And it is what connects us to God. This is the armor of God that Paul describes. But there's also a charge that comes to the soldier. 
For you see, all of this begins in verse 14 with a verb. Stand, therefore. A command from God. You see, Paul has told us to realize that we are in a battle. Because if we don't know we're in a battle, we won't be ready to fight. If we don't know we're in a battle, we won't fight. If we don't know we're in a battle, we will not understand the importance of this armor. After all, who would want to be encumbered going about everyday ordinary life in armor if you weren't in the midst of a battle? But God has told us we are to stand. You see, the Lord is concerned for our stability. Wobbly Christians are an easy prey for the devil. When we are not firm on our feet, the devil has the advantage over us. It used to be, years and years ago, when I was a child, that there was a certain sort of toy called a weeble. You may recall it, it had a round bottom. And the saying was, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. You couldn't knock them over. Paul is not telling you to be a weeble. He's telling you to have your feet planted firmly in the gospel on the ground. Not to wobble at any time. Not to give in to the attacks of the enemy. To be firm in your faith. And this verb here, to stand, is the main verb of the whole passage. Everything else comes around it. Every other verb that Paul uses where he says, you are to put on this. You are to fasten on that. You are to take up this. All of those other verbs are participles that describe the act of standing. The main thing that we are to do is we are commanded to stand in the battle. But the only way we can do that is by putting on the armor. William Gurnall, one of the famous Puritan authors, wrote about the armor of God. Unless you think this sermon has gone on too long, you should know that when he exegeted these three verses, he wrote three volumes of more than 260 chapters and more than 1,200 pages on these verses. There's one particular quote that is very applicable here. In heaven... We shall not appear in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, these pieces of armor specified are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them. Or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ. You are called to put on the armor of God because you are in a battle and you are called to stand against the enemy of your soul. If you would stand, you must take the armor that God has given to you. You must trust in Him and in His promises. And that is how we stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the reminder that we are in a battle. That, Lord, we must be strong, but we can only be strong in your might. And we can only defend ourselves if we are equipped with your armor. Lord, we ask 
that you would make us eager to wear this armor, that we would be trained in its use, and that we would fight the good fight for the glory of our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.